Today, I'd like to spend some time talking about the Saudi Aramco IPO and why that IPO should make zero sense to investors worldwide. Welcome to episode 22 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Asad Rizouk. I am so happy you're here. So let's talk about the fact that the Saudis want to do an initial public offering for Saudi Aramco. In other words, they want to list their state-owned oil company, Saudi Aramco, on a stock market near you to share its ownership with you, the public, and with you, investors. They also clearly want to share the climate change risks with you, the public, and you, investors. Now, what are they actually doing? Who is Saudi Aramco? And how do we think about the Saudi Aramco IPO? And if this is such a great thing, if Saudi Aramco is such an awesome, amazing company, why would the Saudi government want to sell down its stake and send some of the profits to you and me, the public, and to you, investors? And in an era when we are clearly in a climate emergency, what are JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, HSBC, Credit Suisse and another 10 banks actually doing promoting the stock. How can they? How do we reconcile their pronouncements about how they're backing the Paris Climate Change Agreement with bringing the Saudi Aramco stock to a stock market near us, the public? First, let me put the company into perspective. It's the largest oil company in the world. It's also the most profitable company, any company in the world, because in 2018, it made $110 billion of net income, and that was on revenues of $355 billion. Now, $355 billion is as much as the GDP, so the entire economy of Nigeria or South Africa. It's more than the entire economy of Ireland or Denmark or Singapore. It's simply a huge number. Saudi Aramco also happens to be the third largest polluter in the history of the world after the good people of Chevron and the good people of ExxonMobil. So Aramco has pumped enough CO2 and methane into the atmosphere to qualify as the third largest polluter in history. What the Saudi Aramco IPO is, therefore, it's simultaneously an offer of a humongously large company in terms of its current net income at least, as well as an offer of a humongously large polluter in the age of fighting against climate change. Because I'm not sure if the Saudi Aramco people and their bankers have noticed, but that's the age we're in. We're in the age of fighting against climate change and the third largest polluter in history wants your money. Now, let's talk about Saudi Aramco's valuation. I love this bit. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia thinks that the company should command a valuation of $2 trillion. That immediately makes it more than twice as valuable as the next biggest company in the world. What the Saudis want 
after they get their $2 trillion valuation is they want to list 5% of the company because they want to generate $100 billion or so for their pockets. And at the moment, they are evaluating all sorts of cunning plans of how to convince you, the public, and you, investors, to give them $100 billion. Now, that would be a domestic listing in Saudi Arabia, followed by a listing in London or New York or Tokyo or Hong Kong, or it could be a listing in Saudi Arabia and then pumping the stock up to get it to the level that they want and then a listing in London or New York or Tokyo or Hong Kong. They've got some of the smartest brains in the world on this, and I'm sure by the time something is formally announced, which I understand is going to be very soon, there will be a very cunning plan. And that's why we have to be very, very careful when we consider the Saudi Aramco IPO. Now, I want to digress and talk about the greed monster for a minute. The company has already selected lots of banks, household names, including Bank of America, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Barclays, BNP Paribas, Deutsche Bank, UBS, Credit Agricole, Société Générale, and others to take it public. You get the picture. And what is hilarious is that many of these banks are the very same banks that pretend they care about climate change, but God forbid, anything should come between them and making a buck now. So you've got all these bright bankers completely focused on the bonuses they will take home once they take the company public because none of them actually care what the stock price does after the company goes public. And isn't that a wonderful position to be in? You've got to love it. Speaking of markets and banks, the signs on the wall are encouraging from their perspective. Because when the bankers look at it, what they see is that Aramco earlier this year raised $12 billion in bonds on the back of demand of $100 billion. So there were $100 billion chasing the bonds, but there was only $12 billion of bonds. And what they therefore see is lots of demand for the Aramco name, and they then deduce that the IPO is just going to fly. It's going to sell, and they love it. Their greed then comes in, that's the banker's greed, and the attraction of getting paid a big bonus right now means that all these lovely banks suddenly forget about environmental and social and governance criteria. They forget about climate change. They forget about the world burning. They forget even their own words. They forget their websites. They forget their CSR policies. They forget their promises and they go after a quick buck. How predictable. Now, the $2 trillion that the Saudi want is somewhat of a random number. I can just imagine what happened. The Saudis took an envelope and then they turned that envelope and on the back of the envelope and with what I assume is a very expensive pen, they calculated how much barrels of reserves, oil reserves, they think they have and they multiplied that number by $8. Why $8? Because $8 is the benchmark that's used to value reserves. Saudi says that it's got 260 billion barrels of reserves. And so if you multiply it by eight, you get roughly $2 trillion. And so the Saudis said to the banks, we want $2 trillion. 
What you, the public, and you, investors, should know is that the $2 trillion makes zero sense. If you apply that benchmark of taking my reserves and multiplying them by eight to, say, Rosneft, the Russian company, you would get a market capitalization that would be multiple of what the value of Rosneft is today. In the case of ExxonMobil, you would get a fraction of their market capitalization if you looked at them just on the basis of their reserves. So that's certainly not the only metric that's applied to derive evaluation for an oil company. Importantly, the $2 trillion also assumes that Saudi Aramco can pump oil until the cows come home. In other words, that valuation assumes that they're going to sell oil for the next 70 years or however long the financial model of the financial analysts that will be selling that IPO to you says that they'll be selling oil for. Investors however, probably should know that this is not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because we've reached the end of the age of oil. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. There are other ways you can value the company. I don't want to get technical. However, these other ways do not give you $2 trillion. What they'll give you is somewhere between $500 billion and $1.2 trillion, not $2 trillion. And now let's talk about risks. I want to start by what I thought was a very funny quote from a story in the otherwise serious Financial Times. The quote says, if international demand is lower than expected, the Saudi government is expected to ask the segment of rich Saudis to make up any shortfall, said one banker working on the deal. End of quote. Now, let me translate that for you. In other words, if international investors do not turn out as expected at the party, then the government's going to nicely ask rich Saudis to make up the shortfall. And we know some of the techniques available to the Saudi government when it wants to ask nicely. For example, they might invite you to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Saudi Arabia. Or they could invite you into their consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. So I thought that sentence, just the way it was buried in that article, was a gem. So there is risk number one. Risk number two is, of course, the Paris Climate Agreement. If the Paris Climate Agreement is implemented in any shape or form, this company is not going to pump oil forever. And therefore, its financial model is not valid. Now, the Saudis know that they will probably pump the last drop of oil on the planet. And that's because their cost of production is lower than anybody else's. So that bit at least makes sense. But it's quantum that we're talking about. There is no way the Saudis can continue to pump oil, and not just the Saudis for that matter, at the level that they are pumping it at, because otherwise we are all going to fry, and we refuse to fry. In addition, all the signs, early as they may be, are that they will not pump all that oil out. Just in the last two weeks, Mercedes-Benz, which put out the first internal combustion engine in 1885, announced that it was discontinuing research and development of internal combustion engines for cars. That is the end of an era 
Mercedes-Benz will focus completely on electric vehicles. Even Toyota expects to be free of traditional engines by 2050, and we all know how conservative the Japanese can be. Electric buses are taking the road worldwide in increasing numbers. Electric scooters are doing the same. Electric cars haven't even started their big move. And gasoline, which you put in your cars and your buses and your scooters, accounts for 25% of oil consumed globally. So clearly, the wind is not with Saudi Aramco. Now, these oil companies... Saudi Aramco included, seem to think that the future is plastic. In other words, they want to bury us in a lot more plastic in order to make up for any shortfall of demand from the transportation sector or any other sector, because plastic is, of course, made from oil. But they're not going to succeed. The push against plastic is also gaining momentum worldwide. Again, just in the last week, the story emerged that India is expected to announce a nationwide ban on single-use plastic in October. That's India, population 1.3 billion people. And that's India, whose Mumbai city already banned single-use plastic a few months ago. India would be the 40th country or so that's actually decisively moved against single-use plastic and that movement is not going back. That movement is only growing stronger. Yet another risk is that obviously when a state-owned company goes public you want a discount for the political risks that surround it because it's controlled by government and when governments need cash they raid the company. Just look at the scandal of Petrobras in Brazil for example. That scandal sent its shares sliding to a 16-year low early last year. Investors in Russia's Rosneft are not faring any better. They have to deal with sanctions that limit the stock's upside. And Saudi Aramco, let's not forget, is Saudi Arabia's ATM machine. That's what they live from. Now, to be fair, counterintuitively perhaps, you would as an investor buy Saudi Aramco for two reasons. The first, or rather, you might buy Saudi Aramco for two reasons. The first is it's got the lowest cost and the lowest carbon intensity of reserves in the world, which means that you could sell Exxon, sell Shell, sell BP, sell Rosneft, buy Aramco in order to decrease the carbon intensity of your portfolio. The Saudis are making noises to encourage just that switch. And the noises that they're making are that they are working hard to produce not only the lowest cost oil, but the lowest cost oil with the lowest environmental impacts. Who knows? Maybe that's true. The second reason you might buy Saudi Aramco is because if it were to be listed, it will suddenly become the climate change stock. The stronger the measures we take against climate change, the more the stock will drop because it would be almost a direct proxy from that perspective. Now, what would you pay for Saudi Aramco? You can just imagine my solitary brain cell flying around inside my head, desperately trying to find another one to bang into to give me an answer. But in my case, at least, it's difficult to find another brain cell that would give me that answer. It's very, very difficult. 
Instinctively, I would say you wouldn't pay much for Saudi Aramco. The risks are too high. And so far, I have been talking about it as if it was in Norway, which it's not. Saudi Aramco is not based in Norway. You could see how a couple of weeks ago, its oil installations were vulnerable to all sorts of not-that-friendly neighbors. And remember that in the 1930s, the two co-founders of Saudi Arabia, Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Wahhab, a religious leader, and Ibn Saud, a tribal leader, found common ground despite conflicting goals and built a state on a compromise. The royal family agreed to strictly conform to the Wahhabism religious ideology of its other co-founder by embedding it into the political structure of the kingdom. And that's relevant because this very religious ideology is not a very friendly one. It's also what Al-Qaeda, Daesh, Al-Shabaab, and even Nigeria's Boko Haram follow. So the country has an inherent conflict within it, as well as not that friendly neighbors. It's not Norway. So there's not much to say really in conclusion, except why would you take on the headache that is Saudi Aramco. Best to stay away from that stock and from the IPO. And it's too bad if the bankers don't make the bonuses that they're counting on this Christmas. I mean, why bother? My hero of the week is every single person that went out worldwide on a climate strike on September 20 and the week that followed. The climate strike was awesome on so many levels. It was the largest climate protest in history, of course, but it was also one of the largest protests in history of any kind. I do have to say, however, that looking at it from Asia, the silence was somewhat deafening. If you look at the numbers of people that came out in China, Japan, Indonesia, in Singapore, in Thailand, in Vietnam, in Laos, in Cambodia, for example, it was disproportionately low compared to the climate risk that these countries are running. We all know that five of the top 10 countries most at risk from climate change are in Asia. So I don't want to dampen the party spirits or anything, but the silence in Asia was deafening. My villain of the week is Norway's Equinor. They are a very big oil company, which actually happens to be this time in Norway. They were formerly known as Statoil, but it's fashionable these days, if you have the word oil in your name, to go and hide behind something else. But whatever their name, they cannot hide what they're actually about, and they are my villain of the week because UK regulators issued a warning to them over false advertising on the London Underground. These people were running ads implying that gas is a low-carbon energy source when we all know that the leakages from gas, when you frack it or you drill to get it, when you pick it up, transport it, refine it, and pipeline it, mean that natural gas is dirtier than coal. Natural gas is 
dirtier than coal. And I'm repeating it because you should not believe the propaganda of the oil industry trying to sell us natural gas all day long as their cure to climate change. Yet the Equinor people ran a huge advertising campaign implying that it was a low-carbon energy source and they were slapped by UK regulators who stopped them from using that advertisement again. So Equinor, shame on you. False advertising is absolutely terrible. You're literally trying to brainwash citizens through nice-sounding campaigns that are not only false, but misleading and outright lies. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Remember that you can find transcripts of every single episode within two weeks from that episode going live on my website, theangrycleanenergyguy.com. And have a great couple of weeks.